Good morning. Welcome to all as we gather together in this new year, new you series. We've been growing as disciples of Jesus. And what we've learned so far is that discipleship starts by surrendering in faith, trusting only what Jesus has done for us to be the foundation of our relationship with God, and then trusting Jesus for that foundation by the Holy Spirit's power. We're called to grow into that relationship and what that means for us into our own individual callings as disciples, as student learners of Jesus who are growing in his grace. And last week, we learned about the power of spending time in the word of God to let our lives be formed by the truth of the word. And today we're learning, we're seeing what we can learn about being disciples by looking at Jesus' disciples in the Bible. And before we get to that, I want to start by saying there are actually a lot of people who are called disciples in the Bible, who are followers of Jesus, including a whole list of women, several of whom we know by name, Salome, Joanna, Susanna, Martha, and four different Marys, so obviously that was a popular name. And we also know that there were 70 disciples who Jesus sent out on a mission to go and prepare the places where he was going to go. So even though the 12 get most of the press, there actually were a lot of disciples of Jesus, even some like Nicodemus and the ranks of the Pharisees or Joseph of Arimathea and kind of the upper crust of society. But out of all of those followers of Jesus, Jesus chose 12 in particular to invest in to call as apostles, who were basically kind of like his small group, to travel from town to town with, to live with, to invest in, to teach more deeply. And you might wonder, why would Jesus do that? Well, because Jesus was both fully divine and fully human. And as a human being yourself, how many people can you deeply invest in at one time, right? Jesus had three years to invest in this work that was going to change the world. And so he chose 12 men to spend 24-7 with to give them a crash course in hands-on learning. And those disciples learned just as much from observing Jesus, I'm sure, as by anything he said. And I think that's true for us too sometimes. When we use the word of God to observe Jesus with these 12, we can learn a lot about being disciples and about how Jesus works in our lives today too. So what do we know about these 12. Well, we know that Jesus spent a whole night in prayer before he chose them to be his apostles, and we know that they were a pretty diverse crew. So before we get to unpacking these 12, I want to remind you, you have a note sheet in your bulletin, and sometimes 12 is a lot. So in order to kind of keep those clear, it might help you if you want to jot down notes for each of those 12 as we go along from here. So let's start with the disciple Andrew. In the book of John, we're told that Andrew was a follower of John the Baptist first. So obviously, he was a guy who was already looking for spiritual answers. And when John the Baptist pointed him to Jesus, Andrew followed. And when Andrew knew that he had found the Messiah, the very first thing that he did was to go home and invite his brother Peter to come and meet Jesus. And we don't see Andrew, his name, as much as Peter's in the Gospels. So we already know he was obviously the quieter brother. But whenever we do see Andrew, he's always doing the same thing. He's bringing people to Jesus. He's bringing Peter to Jesus. He's bringing the boy with the five loaves and the two fish to Jesus. He's bringing the Greeks who had asked to see Jesus to Jesus. See, Andrew's gifts are not flashy ones. They're genuine. 
And there are some places in Scripture where we see that Andrew was with Jesus, Peter, James, and John in some of those inner circle conversations, but most often he wasn't. And I think there's a reason for that, that because Andrew's passion, I think, was always looking to the outside. He was always looking for somebody else to invite in because the disciple Andrew was the inviter. But Peter, his brother, is very different. Peter is enthusiastic and loud and unmissable. And even though he was introduced to Jesus, Peter doesn't actually start following until Jesus comes and meets him at his workplace and tells him to switch from catching fish to catching people. And when Peter experiences Jesus' power, he is so blown away from that moment, he doesn't even turn back. Peter's kind of an all-or-nothing guy. His name is actually Simon, but Jesus calls him Peter, which means the rock. And I don't know if that's a commentary on his hard-headedness or his absolute loyalty. Could be either way. But if you're going to summarize Peter's discipleship, I would call it bold. Because Peter was never afraid to ask questions or to venture an answer. He was never afraid to be wrong. He was never afraid to ask things that nobody else would think of asking. Case in point, at night, one night, seeing Jesus walk across the water toward them on a boat, Peter's first impulse is to yell out, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come out and walk on the water with you. Now, I have to tell you, I know that I am not a Peter kind of disciple because that would never occur to me in a million years. (laughs) I would not ask that. But Peter did. And Jesus answered, come. Peter's bold kind of discipleship sometimes actually led him to need bold forgiveness, truly. Where his brother Andrew was winsome, Peter could be off-putting to people. But where Andrew held back, Peter dared to tread. Peter was the bold disciple. Then we've got another set of brothers, James and John, who Jesus gives the nickname Sons of Thunder. And that's a play off their actual father's name, but it's also a reflection of their sometimes thunderous personalities. And we actually get a glimpse of that in Luke 9. When angry at a town that had slighted Jesus, they turn to Jesus and they ask, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? And Jesus says, no. (laughs) No. The goal is to save people, guys. Obviously, the sons of thunder need to learn a little bit about what Jesus is about at that point. But through the gospel, Jesus spends a lot of time with these two in particular. Whenever Jesus chooses a smaller group from the 12, uh, James and John are there along with Peter. And of those two, we actually know the most about John, who's probably the younger brother since he's always listed second. But John is thought to be the gospel writer John, and the author of the letters 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. John was the only disciple present at the crucifixion, so he was obviously brave. He was the disciple that Jesus gave responsibility to care for his mother, so he was obviously trustworthy. And of the 12, John was the only one who died a natural death, not martyred. Of the disciples, John also gets the most changed award, because he started off fiery, And by the end, he showed incredible depth of spirit, patience, and love. John, the beloved disciple, was a man transformed by love, by being present with Jesus. And his purpose in all of his works was to see us transformed by drawing us into that loving presence as well. James, his brother, was another story. And I have to confess, out of all the disciples, I am most curious about James. Because he did everything with Jesus, and yet we hardly ever hear him speak. 
So I kind of think maybe he was one of those strong, silent types. Right? But scripture shows us about James that he absolutely believed in Jesus as the Messiah. He was fully convinced he saw Jesus transfigured in glory. He experienced all of Jesus' miracles, and he was excited about the new kingdom that was coming, which was probably why he got so mad at those people who were dishonoring Jesus, and probably why he and his brother got in trouble with the other disciples when they asked Jesus if they could have the seats of honor at his right and left in the new kingdom. That new kingdom was such a present reality to James, he wanted to call dibs. And Jesus said to him, you don't know what you're asking. Can you be baptized with the baptism with which I will be baptized, meaning his death on the cross? And James immediately answers, we can. And Jesus answered him, you will. And James would. James was the first disciple to be martyred for his faith in Jesus and the only disciple for that martyrdom to be recorded in Scripture in Acts 12. James saw Jesus' lordship so clearly, I'm sure the crucifixion came as a complete shock to him. He saw the glory. He didn't see the cost. And after Jesus' resurrection, when the disciples asked, Lord, are you now going to establish the kingdom? I imagine that was James asking that question, whose eyes were always on the kingdom. And so maybe it's fitting that James becomes the first to enter it, put to death by a sword, the Jewish punishment for idolatry, which is how they would have seen him making much of Jesus. But James, in his passionate faith in King Jesus, could do no less. James was the passionate disciple of kingdom faith. And I look forward to meeting him someday. Philip was the disciple directly called by Jesus in John 1.43. And a lot like Andrew, the very first thing Philip does when he's called is to go and find his friend Nathaniel and tell him, we found the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Now, Philip is a Greek name, which shows he was part of the Greek-speaking community, but he was also very well-versed in Scripture, so he's obviously a passionate Jew. And where Philip's name comes up in the Gospels, he seems to be a man with a really warm heart, but whose head sometimes gets in the way. Because before the feeding of the 5,000, since they were in the Greek-speaking area, Jesus asks Philip, where can we get enough food to feed all these people? And Philip's answer to Jesus is pure head. He says, we can't. First of all, we can't afford it. Second of all, even if we could, there is no bakery that would have this much bread on hand, and no family makes more than one extra loaf for themselves a day, so there's not even a place to get that much bread, even if we had the money. We can't feed these people. Can't be done, Jesus. And then he watches Jesus do it. This is probably a red-letter day for Philip to see that nothing is impossible with God. And later on, Philip asked Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, don't you know by now, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Philip is the disciple with a practical mind who is invited to know that he can trust Jesus for what is clearly impossible without him. Philip is the disciple whose trust moves from head to the heart. Nathaniel, or Bartholomew, is the disciple that Philip invites. And from the approach that Philip takes with Nathaniel, we can see that scripture and prophecy really matter to him, so much so that he points out that Nazareth is not a place where a prophet should come from, not realizing that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem, not in, from Nazareth. And Jesus calls him an Israelite who's pure in heart, with no deceit. 
Jesus tells Nathanael that he saw him before he was called, and that supernatural vision so wins Nathanael over so quickly, I think it actually makes Jesus chuckle a little bit when he tells him, hold on, Nathanael, you're going to see greater things than that. <laughs> Nathanael is from Cana, where they went soon after this for a wedding where Jesus turned water into wine. So Nathanael would have soon witnessed Jesus' power for the people of his own hometown, and that's only the beginning. Nathaniel is also known as Bartholomew, which is most likely a nickname because Bar means son. So son of Tholomew is his nickname. And that kind of thing usually happened when dad was the big deal, right? When he was known for who his dad is, which suggests he might have been of noble birth. And after Jesus' resurrection, Nathaniel is the one who traveled the farthest, maybe because he had the funds. And he traveled all the way to India. In 180 AD, a teacher from Alexandria, Egypt, found Christian congregations already meeting in India using the Gospel of Matthew written in Aramaic, who claimed that they had been founded by this disciple, Bartholomew. Nathaniel is the disciple who trusted Jesus to see greater things. And not only did he see those greater things, but he lived to show them to others. He was the visionary disciple, always seeing God's power revealed. Matthew, or Levi, son of Elpheus, was a tax collector. So to have that job, he would need to be smart and well-educated in Jewish and Roman culture and language. And working for the hated Romans, he would have been hated himself. But obviously, he was a man who had a heart that was longing for more. Because when Jesus looked him in the eye and said, you, follow me, he dropped everything and he followed and I'm sure Matthew's invitation raised some eyebrows from the disciples. And I'm sure Matthew needed that direct an invitation from Jesus to even trust that he was welcome. It was at his house that Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And we don't actually hear much from Matthew in the Gospels. But his greatest contribution, obviously, was in documenting the mission the written word of the Gospel of Matthew was the way his particular gift was used to bless the world and further the mission. The gifts he had to use were his pen and his testimony of a Savior who came for the least of these, for the hated, for the sinner, for the broken, to invite them into his kingdom of grace. Matthew was the disciple who tells the story of the life-changing invitation of grace. We don't know how Thomas came to follow Jesus. All we know about him was that he was brave and skeptical and faithful. In John 11, when Jesus wanted to go to a city that was full of people who wanted to kill him, it was Thomas who said to the other disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. So where James could only see possible victory, Thomas could only see everything ending very badly. <laughs> the optimist and the pessimist, right? But Thomas still believed it was worth it. Think about that. He believed Jesus was worth dying for even before he had any idea about resurrection. That's pretty incredible, isn't it? And when Jesus told his disciples in John 14 that he was going to prepare a place for them, it was Thomas who interrupted to clarify, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? See, Thomas wanted the truth as straight up as possible. He had to know the bare bones truth, no matter how hard it was to take, so he could know how to respond. So Jesus tells him straight up, I am the way, Thomas, and the truth and the life. And I'm grateful for Thomas for being honest about his confusion and his doubt. 
After Jesus' resurrection, Thomas missed out on seeing the risen Jesus, and he couldn't bring himself to say that he believed it was true until one week later when Jesus himself showed up and invited Thomas to put his fingers in the nail holes in his hands and his feet. And then Thomas responded, my Lord and my God. But see, Thomas is the disciple for the skeptics. He shows us that faith isn't easy. Even when you're surrounded by other people's stories of faith, nobody can have faith for you. In the end, faith can only be between you and Jesus. And if that trust was hard for Thomas, who had been there all along and who knew these men who were telling him what they'd seen, it's understandable that it can be hard for you. But Thomas's witness shows us Jesus understands and he loves the skeptic too. Thomas is the disciple who hung in there despite his doubt, and he saw Jesus. We don't know very much about James the Lesser or James the Younger. Other than appearing in the list of disciples, the only other thing we know about him was that he brought his mom to Jesus. Both Mark and Luke tell us that his mother, whose name was Mary, was at the crucifixion, and along with Mary Magdalene, went to anoint Jesus' body and was one of the first witnesses of the resurrection. So maybe he should be known as James, son of Mary. Following Jesus was an experience that James shared with his family. And many since have shared and lived out their faith in the same way. James was the family disciple. And the other Judas, or Thaddeus, is sometimes also known as Jude. You can imagine if your name was Judas, you might want a nickname too, kind of like being called Adolf after World War II, right? The only thing the Bible records of him was a question that he asked Jesus in John 14 when he says, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not the world? And because of that question, scholars tend to think that he fell into the zealot camp, not seeing the point of suffering when Jesus could be winning over the world by God's power. It's something you might think would be attributed to the next disciple, Simon the Zealot, of which the fact that he was a zealot is the only thing we know about him. Zealots had strong nationalistic zeal to want to see God's people hold earthly power, kind of like in the glory days of King David. So at the start, both Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot probably believed that Jesus, having such amazing power, was going to rally the political troops to establish a new earthly kingdom. But by the end, they began to see something more powerful, more world-changing in him than that. After the resurrection, both of these men were there waiting for instructions from him about what's next. And they both were eventually martyred through the stories of tradition, showing nothing but love to their enemies, which never would have happened before they met Jesus. Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot became disciples of revolutionary, world-changing mercy. And then finally, there's Judas Iscariot, the one who got away. Now, why of the 12 disciples that Jesus chose to invest in, to teach, to guide, to love, did this disciple choose to sell him out for 30 pieces of silver? And why would Jesus even call him in the first place if there's a chance that he would turn away? Well, I think there's a very powerful truth about God's love and relationship to us in this. Because the truth is, every one of us are given the freedom to respond to Jesus' love or to walk away. We are invited, but we're not forced 
to be part of this kingdom that Jesus came to bring us. But Jesus invites, Jesus calls even those who will reject him. On his side, he always chooses love. He loves till the end. And yet the truth is, some will reject him. Even one who has walked with him and known him and seen his power. Some will choose silver over the Savior. And risking that, risking losing us, is the heartbreaking cost of giving that kind of freedom to us. The one who fell away is an important part of this story because it serves to remind us what Jesus offers us is worth so much more than 30 silver coins. And yet, what are we tempted to trade him for? There are 11 different examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus and only one of what it looks like to fall away. Because people follow Jesus in many different ways, but all who fall away fall away the same, choosing to trust only the self over trusting him. And when we do that, all we can hope to gain is what we can give ourselves, and that can never defeat death. Each of these disciples, except one, allowed being with Jesus to change them, to transform them into unique vessels that amplify his purposes, to shine his love and his truth into the world and their unique voices and experiences and gifts. But when we withhold us from Jesus, that process can't begin. You see, Judas's story shows us that we can be around Jesus for years and still not allow him to be our Lord. So don't let that be your story. Tell Jesus, I want your future for me. And that starts with you being Lord right now of my life in the present. See what Jesus does in you. Because being with him is where it all starts. Mark 3.14 says that these apostles were called for three purposes. And the first one was to be with him. And then to preach. And then to drive out demons. And the heart behind those missions is also true in our discipleship because our discipleship can only start with being with him because all that we can become can only come from the one whose power and presence makes us new, recreates us, makes a new you. So then, being with Jesus, that's what gives us the message that we have to share, how we've experienced him in our lives. So then our lives start to preach the good news of his love to others in things we say and in things that we do. And then when that love is preached in our lives into the world, we become beacons of powerful light that drives out the forces of darkness that keep other people from seeing that love too. But how is that love lived out in you? How that message is preached in your life depends on what kind of disciple you have been created to be. So do you know? Are you an Andrew? Are you a winsome inviter? Is God laying someone on your heart to invite to know him? Are you a bold but imperfect proclaimer like Peter? Is there some bold step of faith that God is calling you to take? Are you a beacon of kingdom-focused faith like James? Is there someone that you can help see the bigger picture of what God is doing? Or are you a deep ponderer of the transformational power of love like John? Is there somebody that you can help one-on-one -on -one to know and to feel God's love for them through word or through action? Are you the disciple who has to start in the head in order to get to the heart like Philip, who can help others make that connection too? 
Are you a person who seeks the Holy Spirit's visionary power and feels called to share those greater things with others, like Nathaniel? Are you, like Matthew, moved to share your own story about how Jesus invited an outsider like you into his family? Are you honest with your doubts, but still choose to seek Jesus, like Thomas? Do you grow best in living out your faith and relationship with others in your family, like James? Are you most passionate about seeing God's power put to work in changing a broken world right here and now, like Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot? Maybe you could put that love into action by encouraging someone who's been out of work during the government shutdown. Or maybe you could hear your, let your voice be heard in world-changing, revolutionary love rather than tearing down someone else in anger. Or finally, are you like Matthias, the final disciple in the book of Acts who was called to replace Judas, the newbie disciple whose gifts and callings are yet to be discovered through the Holy Spirit's work? What disciple are you? Spiritually this week, I'd like you to sit with that question. I'd like you to invite Jesus to finish this sentence for this particular season in your life. Through your work in me, Jesus, I think I'm the disciple who, what? How does your life and your personality, your experience with Jesus, best reflect Jesus to the world? And then ask the Holy Spirit for ways that you can grow out and live in that calling. And then I'd also like to ask you to do the same for somebody else, to notice what other students of Jesus are teaching you through their unique callings and their faith and take the time to encourage them by pointing that out to them. To me, you are the disciple who shows me this about who Jesus is. Thank you for living out that calling. See, as we grow as Jesus' disciples, we grow in our calling to be with him to let him do what he wants to do in us, to be Savior to us, so that our lives can be transformed, so that we can preach the truth of his love and grace by both what we say and what we do in this world, that through us the darkness of this world is driven out and replaced instead by his light. Because that's how Jesus chooses to make his love known in the world, by calling all disciples to him, calling you and me. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you came to this world to show us uh, the love of God the Father, to die for us, to rise for us, to show us that there's nothing that can ever separate us from you. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to grow up in grace, to know the unique ways that you call us to shine your light. And we pray that your Holy Spirit may continue to use us as imperfect vessels of your perfect grace. Help us, Lord, to each reflect a different aspect of your love to the world as you have created us to do. Lord, we pray that you would shine in us, that you might shine through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.